part of this. I did this a few weeks ago, and I think I had maybe six minutes to do some of this, and I got through like three of them. How many did I get through, Wendy? You wrote them down. Three of them. So we're going to start over, and we're going to do this again. We're going to look at our Baptist distinctives. This is basically, and I, I pulled this. This is not, I shouldn't, how should I put this where it's not like me taking credit for someone else? This is not my own work, I should put it. I took a class when I was in college. It's a, it was a night class, so it was Monday nights from like 7 to 9. That was the worst class. Those two-hour-long classes, oh, those were rough, especially on Monday nights. I don't know why they did that. But um, we took Baptist history and distinctives, and then for the first basically half a semester, we looked in detail on the distinctives. So what I'm doing is I'm cramming seven weeks of college career into 31 minutes. So, buckle your seatbelts. So this is a mixture of stuff I got from that class, um, my own personal study, and then some of actually dad's master's thesis that he brought out. And so this is what we, why we believe what we believe. We're going through continue and looking at like the details of our faith. This is more, why are we called Baptists over something else? You walk, you drive through Fort Morgan, you drive through Brush, you'll see churches of every different denomination. And we see that word denominations pop up. You see a word called non-denominational now pop up. And you see how people go to a place and a lot of times they have no idea what they believe or why they believe it. And so we are, we are commanded to be strong in our faith and to know why we believe what we believe. So this is just a small footstep into that. So we're going to look at the reason why we're called Baptists. I'm not going to get into too much of Baptist history because frankly, there's a lot you could get into, but I can give you guys some ideas on books if you guys want afterward. So let's hit the Baptist distinctives real quick. Letter B or number one, you could say is biblical authority. We touched this um, a few weeks ago, biblical authority. I gave you nice fill in the blank stuff. You guys pay attention and follow along and all sorts of stuff. And if something's misspelled, I'm sorry. I was homeschooled. So no offense to the homeschooling parents in here. Sorry, Rickers. <laughs> but um, biblical authority. The Bible is our, put it this way, the Bible's our final authority for faith and practice. You have a question? You have a homeschool? You can do whatever you want to do, Tim. <laughs> As Steph elbows him in the ribs. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Bible is our fine. For those of you joining by live stream, I'm sorry. We've got children in this class. They're in their 40s, but they're still children. But biblical authority. The Bible is our final authority for faith and practice. What this means is that when we do something or we want to change something... We look at what the Bible says more than anything else. There's a pastor we know in Tennessee, I believe, who just got rid of their Sunday night service. We have this tendency to look at, we've done this this way our whole lives and we shouldn't change it. And now we have an, we have an idea that Sunday night is a needful experience for everyone that comes. And this crowd in here comes to pretty much every Sunday night and we know that we get a lot of meat from Sunday nights. Pastor gets a little more detailed on Sunday nights, and we are able to grow as a family on Sunday nights. 
So there's a need for it. But nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to have three services a week. And so this pastor took it to his church, looked at what the Bible said, and they found out that it was, it was hindering a lot of what they were doing, and they cut Sunday night out of their schedule. Nothing to say, nothing's wrong with that. Now, I don't think we will do it because we have, we have a strength in it. We have, we have a needful worship in that, and we grow from Sunday night. But they looked at what the Bible says more than what tradition or someone dictates. A good verse for this, you have it there, is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's valuable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that's every one of us, we have the, we're the people of God, we're the men and women of God, the man, the man of God may be perfect, that means complete, thoroughly furnished. A good way to put that is you are fully armed out. A soldier would get ready for war, they wouldn't go and just grab a sword and run, right? They would go, they'd put on their armor, they'd put on their helmet, they'd put on their shoes, they'd strap on their sword, they'd get their shield. They were thoroughly furnished for battle. And that's what the Bible is supposed to be for us. It's our equipment to get ready. So letter B, we see biblical authority. Letter A, now we're going backwards. Letter A, the autonomy of the local church. The autonomy of the local church. 1 Timothy 3.15, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. What we see here is that the church is meant to be the pillar and ground of truth. It's, it's meant to be a place for Christians to come and worship and grow and develop, but it's also meant to be an avenue for us to witness. Now, the difference we have with a lot of different denominations and even some in the Baptist denomination, you could say, is that we believe in an autonomous local church. This church governs itself. We do not look to a board of elders in a different location or a denominational head. We, we look to every one of us and we govern ourselves. I remember when dad did this 15 years ago, he started having men's meetings, which we still, we still do quite a bit. And now we've brought it before the church more and the church governs how it's led. We've probably, we look at, we'll look at pastors and deacons. We have pastors and deacons who step in and they help lead. But for the most part, the church makes decisions based on what they believe, why they believe it, to push the church forward. Acts 13, verse 1. And now they were in the church that was in Antioch, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, which had, also been, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me. Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. One of the reasons for the church is to send people out. If we had someone come in and say, hey, I'm going to be a missionary to Uganda, or I'm going to go over to Taiwan, or I'm going to go down to um, Brazil, we as a church would send them out. We would support them financially. That's the part of the autonomous local church. We don't have to look to someone and say, hey, can we get the money for this, or can we have permission to send this person out? We do what God leads us to do. So that's letter A, the autonomy of the local church. Good way to put it is we govern ourselves. Letter P is the priesthood of the believers. This is one of the things, this is one of the distinctives 
that more Baptists have died for in history than ever before. When you look at the Baptist history, I guess, you can see it traced back thousands of years. And we're not this, we came over with the people who left England to escape the persecution. America was founded as both a political and a religious freedom colony to give them chances to worship. But even the Baptists were persecuted even here. And Baptists believe in the priesthood of the believer. And what that means is that we do not need an intermediary between us and God. We have direct access to him. If you look at a lot of the religions, a lot of the Protestant religions in our world today, most of them will have an intermediary between you and God. The Catholic Church is one of the is the biggest one on this. To get access to God, you have to either go to a priest or pray to a saint or those kind of things or have sacraments made to the, to God to get access to him. But the Bible says Hebrews 4:14 4, says Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. When you look at the, pro, the, the office of the high priest in Old Testament times, and you look at the, um, the, Levitic, the Levitical law of laying it out, the high priest was the only person who had direct access to God at the time. Aaron was the first high priest in the book of Exodus, and he was the only person who could enter into the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice to God and commune with God directly. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he, he gave his life for us and shed his blood, the Bible says that the temple veil, which was a very thick veil, the veil probably would have been several inches thick, made of pure fabric, of high quality was rent from top to bottom what that symbolizes is that the only person that could do that is god almighty so when jesus christ died he tore the veil and gave us each direct access to god now worship has changed in this disposition we're in and now we are able to see that god gives us access through prayer revel or look at keep looking at hebrews 4 14 which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What that means is we don't have to come to God as he's some tyrant sitting on a throne and we have to appease him. It's not like Esther going before King Xerxes and saying, hey, I need this, and if he holds out the scepter, I'm fine. God wants us to come boldly to him. Now our confidence comes in our consecration, you could say. We've got to keep our relationship with God pure. That means when sin gets in the way, you've got to clean that up. But we are able to come boldly before God, and we're able to get that forgiveness, and we're able to get that help and get the grace that we need. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, And from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see the priesthood of the believer. Never forget that. We have people come to us and 
we've had several people in the last few years say, hey, can you come in? I need, I need a pastor to pray over me for this. And we're fine to go and pray for someone. We're fine to go and pray with someone. But to be honest, your connection with God is the same connection that any of the pastoral staff here has. It's no different. They've called us to a different role for sure, but we have the same exact direct access. The access Pastor Monday has to God is the same access that one of the little kids up with Tyler has. There's no difference. But it's a problem is if you're saved, you have direct access. If you're not saved, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and at that point, God's waiting to give you that direct access. And he's there to listen. We had kids at camp this week. They said, I, didn't, I don't know how to do this. I said, it's the easiest thing in the world. Explaining salvation to a child is one of the neatest things because it's so simple. And they look at you and they realize, this is amazing. Wendy and myself talked with one lady sitting in this back corner, and we talked to her for 30 minutes. But you could see the moment it clicked with her that, hey, it's that easy. I have kids. I had a kid up at camp. He came back the last morning. And I said, why do you want to come back? And he said, I've been pushing this off. This is a junior boy. He said, I've been pushing this off. I need to get saved. I didn't have to lay out what salvation was. He told me exactly what it was. And he said, I just need to pray and get this right. And it was that simple. A child could figure it out. So remember, we have that access through the priest to the believer. Letter T is the first letter T. Two offices of the church. We have the pastor and we have the deacon. Put it this way. We have a shepherd and we have a servant. That's really the easiest way to put it. Both those words in the Greek mean pastor, mean shepherd and servant. Our pastor is here to lead us, to direct us, to watch over us, to guide us. He's to be the mouthpiece of God, and he's supposed to be here to let us know what we need to do to teach us and to train us and to guide us. The office of the deacon, which in this church years ago, we had, frankly, uh, looking back now as, a, as an adult, knowing what I know, looking back how they wanted to run the church, we had people that abused their title as deacon to be more of a shepherd. One thing I love about the four deacons that we have in place is we have four very servant-hearted individuals. If there's something that needs to be done, if there's something that needs to happen, those four men are on, and two of them are in here, and I don't mind talking about them like this at all because they, they do a lot at this place. And they know what their role is. They give advice where they need to, but they sit there and they support our pastor. We talked about dependability a bit up at camp, and I used the illustration or the story of, Moses up on the mountain and they're fighting the Amalekites and Aaron and her come in and hold up the hands of Moses. And that's exactly what a deacon is supposed to be. Someone that comes along and holds up the hand. The pastor is to be the shepherd. The deacon's to be the servant. What it means is that the deacon is supposed to be aiding where the pastor would otherwise be overwhelmed. First Timothy three kind of gives the entire qualifications and idea of what a bishop or a pastor is supposed to be. That term Bishop is it can be interchanged with the term pastor. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. That word is a word that we should all try to be. That word blameless can be interpreted this way. Without candles. 
What that means is there's not a place for him for you to grab onto and pull him down because of that. There's not something, hey, he did this or he acts like this or he does this. There are pastors. There's a pastor in town that I know some, a lot of you guys know that has handles because he can be seen drinking at bars with people and still offer addictions counseling. That's what we call a handle in the ministry. Frankly, if I was a person struggling with alcoholism, I would not go to the person that drinks socially for advice. Just, it's like if you're suicidal, trying to go to another suicidal person and asking for help. It's a bad example, but it's true. You go to someone who's, who's blameless, who doesn't have these handles to pull you down. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetousness, one that ruleth well his own house. That's one dad drilled into us a lot. One that ruleth well his own house. You guys can see a pastor, and this is, this is where you need to get close to your pastor. And I, I feel like my dad has been a very open individual with our home, and we've had people in, and people can see that we are far from perfect. That's why I see you guys who shake your head at your kids about doing stuff. There is nothing your child can do that the Monday three have not tried before. Just FYI. We have scars to prove it. We used to have the old church. We had the wood floor. And we would start up on the stage and we would run and slide under the pews. As an adult looking back, I could have whacked my head. So I probably did and just don't remember it. But dad ruled well our house. And it goes on in this passage and talks about how their wives are supposed to be. And you have to realize that the wife of a pastor is called to just as much as the, as the pastor. And the wife of a deacon is called to just as much as the deacon. And we have deacons and their wives who have decided hey, we're going to do this role. God's called us to this role, so we're going to do it well. And we have people to look for. So we see these two offices of the local church. And I'm not going to go through all the verses, but Acts 6, 1 through 5, looks at this, the deacons who were called and how they called seven of them to come in and help the pastors and take a load off and be servants in the church and help out. So we see letter I, individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. We have the ability and the responsibility to make choices for ourselves. That is both a comfort and a conviction. God is not expecting you to have someone make a choice for you. You have the individual soul liberty to say, hey, I'm going to make this choice. I'm going to do this. I'm going to choose to follow this path. And we are answer answerable to God for every decision that we make. Romans 14 and verse 5 says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And look at verse 12 says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. When that day comes and the rapture comes and we stand before the throne and we, we stand before God and give an account of our life, we are not going to be answering to a spouse, to a pastor, or to a parent. We answer to God. 
We don't answer to people that we feel like we let down. We don't answer to people who we feel like we should impress. We answer to God. God's not going to put you before Pastor Monday and say, hey, you got to explain to him why you did this. No, God's going to put you right before himself and say, hey, why'd you do it? What's the purpose of this? How did this bring people closer to me? That's our individual soul liberty. Letter S, moving on. We have saved church membership. Saved church membership. The church is meant to be made up of saved believers. I want you guys to know, a lot of this study, and this is why we did this, is because I'll, I'll, someone in the church posted to their story about what's the definition of a church this week. And frankly, she got me thinking a lot. And so I started looking at stuff and pulling out notes and reading what the Bible says and looking at Acts is a great book if you want to look at the church being built. Acts is the book of the Bible to look at. There's no other book that kind of goes through what the church is. Acts and then the first and second books of Timothy. But I started looking at this and realizing we can get so bogged down with what we think church is that we lose sight of what it actually is. And church is meant to be made up of saved believers. I hear this a lot, in the ch- and they say a church is a hospital. I both like and dislike that statement. Because a hospital means a sick person is to come in and get better. And yes, that's one of the avenues of the church. We have people that come in, and they get right with sin, and they get sin taken care of, they get right with God, and they move on. But the main purpose of the church, look at Acts 2, verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The church is designed to be an avenue of worship, and witness. We are supposed to come in, worship God with everything we have. That's in what we say. That's frankly in singing. God God wants us to sing. And I get that it's not the most comfortable thing to sing in public. But God desires us to sing. One of the things we've always been discouraged about is our youth group just really doesn't like to sing. Our little kids adore music. Our little kids can sing their little hearts out. But our teens have a hard time with it. But this year at camp, and Tim and Steph are in here, they'll verify it. We had some amazing music with those kids. I had teen boys and teen girls who are so worried about what they look like and how they're perceived, belting out songs like In Christ Alone. And all I ever want to be. And I think of that, and there's, Such a realization that we are supposed to be, number one, saved, but number two, we need to be in a church. We need to be a part of a local church. When the Bible talks about the church in the book of Acts, they joined a physical, local church. Imagine if 3,000 people got saved and joined Platte Valley in one day. I think I had gray hairs just sprout right there thinking about it. We'd need everyone to step up a lot. But we are to be a part of a local church. There's people that say, I'm part of a universal church, or I'm part of the, I'm part of the family of God, and I worship, I worship on my own. And 
that's fine and dandy, but God's called us to be a part of something physical and local because it's through this that the gospel is presented. So we see saved church membership, letter T, the second letter T, is two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are not meant to give salvation or sanctification. That's a big part with both of these that we have to explain with people. These have no bearing on salvation or your even, even your relationship with God, to be honest. They, have, they, have, they are public acts of worship that only saved believers should be taking. Acts uh, 2, verse 41, And they gladly received their word. His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I didn't type it out for you guys because it would have taken a lot, but 1 Corinthians 11 kind of lays out the Lord's Supper. Go home and study that out tonight. But what we see is two physical acts that we're supposed to do to worship God in both spirit and truth, as the Bible says. We practice something that we call close communion. There's three types of communion that are practiced. There's open communion where anyone can come in and take it no matter what you believe. We don't believe that that's accurate. Because we can have someone come in who believes communion has bearings on their salvation. And that's inaccurate to what the Bible says. Then there is closed communion. Closed communion is when a church actually isolates communion for strictly saved members who are, I guess, pre-approved, you could say. These are people that they know are saved, they know are giving, they know are committed, and they have closed communion. A lot of times they'll do it at a different location than a church. I know a church that does it in their pastor's home. And it's by invite, it's on an off night, and they do communion that way. We as Platte Valley practice what we call close communion. Close communion is that we leave it up to you and God, but we ask that if you are a saved human being that's a member of a church, you can take communion. Pastor's not going to pressure you for all the documentation that, hey, when did you get saved? What church are you part of? Are you given that kind of thing? That's between you guys and God, which frankly gives us that liberty, but it gives us responsibility. So those are the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are acts of public worship that only saved believers should be taking. And the last S we have is separation. Separation. I have a really hard time spelling this word, by the way. I want to I do an S-A-P-E-R-A I, all the time. So don't tell, don't tell Mrs. Harding, because I think she taught me how to spell that word, and I'm messing it up 20 years later. But separation, this means... Personal separation, church or ecclesiastical separation, if you want a big word. Ecclesiastical separation or governmental separation. Put it this way. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? 2 Corinthians 6.14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That word unyoke, when you look at the oxen in the Bible or the, or the donkeys that they had, they would yoke them together with a beam of wood and some harnesses. What that means is we should not hook ourselves up with someone who does not believe the same way we do. We are to live a life of separation from the world. There's a lot of people that take that to an extreme where they're not anywhere close to anything in the world. We're not to be that. We are to, we are to be separated not in distance from the world, but put it this way, we're supposed to be separated in disposition. 
how many of you guys work a job with unsaved people most of the day? I think that's pro- majority of the room works here with unsaved people every day. Or you're around unsaved people every day. There's no, you can't fix that. I mean, miss, you can't just go and, I got to quit my job because I don't work around safe people. I mean, some days we want to, we feel that way, right? We talk about work. Some days it feels like, hey, I'm going to go find a church. I'm just going to live there for a bit and work with safe people. But we don't have that. We've got to go out. We have to be in the world. But we shouldn't be like the world. We should be able to be seen wherever we are, wherever we're going, as someone who's a little bit different. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, let's keep looking at that. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath the righteous with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part he that hath be- and or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Jude 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you for the common, of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. What we see here is that we have a faith to be separated with. There are things that we believe that someone else drastically thinks differently. That doesn't mean you can't love the person. I grew up across the street from three Mormon kids that were the same age as all of us. And I remember sitting down with this kid. We had a, we had a pop-up camper that we had set up. And I, for some reason, I was staying in there with Tyler. And I was in there with Quincy. And I remember I was a 12-year-old. And I was sharing gospel with Quincy and thinking, how am I, I, I want this guy to be saved. It doesn't mean that we are to be unloving towards the world. But it means that we are to show Jesus every chance we have. That's a, that's a big problem you see in a lot of churches. There's a pastor in Arizona, and I'm not going to give you his name because you, should, you, shouldn't just waste your, you shouldn't waste your time. There's a pastor in Arizona who has some of the most hateful stuff I've ever seen come from a guy who says he's a Baptist. Yeah. That's the kind of toxic behavior that should not be allowed. We are to be separate, but we're supposed to be separate, not in our distance, but in how we act and how we look and how we treat others. That means we've got to probably get kind of close to someone. But that doesn't mean you're going to have a Catholic priest come in on church one day and start preaching from behind this pulpit. Man, that'll be the day. That doesn't mean you're going to have a Mormon come in and give a Sunday school lesson. We have created a a wall of separation, you could say, around our people for the safety of others. But we are to be loving and communicating with people to showcase Jesus the best way we can. So that's why we're Baptists. So real quick, biblical authority. The Bible's our final authority. Autonomy of the local church. We govern ourselves. Priesthood of the believers. You have direct access to God. Two offices. We have the shepherd and we have the servant. Individual soul liberty. You are answerable to God and God alone. Saved church membership. We're designed, the church is designed 
to be an avenue of worship and an avenue of witnesses and, a, and witness. Two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper, strictly meant to worship God for the sacrifice he gave us. And last thing, separation. Be personally separated. We have church separation. And the governmental, we're not going to get too much into it, but what that was designed to be was in history, governments had access to all the churches and what the churches taught. And Baptists were some of the first people to come out and say the government should have no intervention on the church. That's what that means. That means the government should have no bearing on what we preach or what we teach. And that's why we're to be separate. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.